Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. I'll shortly be joined by Shana Marshall to speak about how financial actors fund the development of military and defense technology. If you enjoy this show and would like to support the work we do, you can go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and hit the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. You can also like and subscribe to our show wherever you listen or watch the show, whether it be on YouTube or on um, other podcast streaming services. And feel free to contact us with any suggestions on topics that we can cover. See you in a bit with Shana Marshall. Joining me now is Shana Marshall. She's the Associate Director of the Institute for Middle East Studies at the George Washington University in D.C. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dr. Shana Marshall. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to have you today because with you, we can speak about the sort of big picture issues when it comes to political economy and the different actors that are involved in the military industrial complex and the defense tech industry. So my first question to you would be, who are the different financial actors, the prominent actors right now in the military industrial and defense tech industry, primarily in the U.S., of course? Right. So, um, of course, you have the what we would call the primes or the OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers, right? Those are the Lockheeds and the Boeings and the Raytheons and Thales and the sort of behemoth firms. Um, that's not so much what I'm looking at, right? I'm looking at um, these VC or venture capital-backed defense tech firms um, that have really sort of exploded since around 2015. So um, part of the story, you know, half of the story is the supply side, and then the other half, of course, is the demand side. So the, you know, the supply side is... Um, just this sort of enormous accumulation and concentration um, of surplus capital right at the very top of the economy in the U.S., right? And that consolidates in the form of, of venture capital and also in, in areas like private equity, which is also taking an increasing role in the military industrial complex, which we can talk about um, also if you're interested. Um, but there's a couple, you know, there's thousands of, of venture capital funds, right? But there's um, a few dozen that are sort of hyper-focused on the defense tech industry. Um, and it's some of the largest ones um, also are very um, are very interested and very active in backing defense technology startups. Um, not just backing them and, and helping to get them up and running, but also going over to civilian def uh, tech startups and actually getting them to transform their operations, their research, their, you know, sort of products into ones with military applications. So it's sort of coming from all sides. But the the major VC funds that are that are super invested in defense tech are um, like uh, Founders Fund, um, Andreessen Horowitz, um, Lux Capital, um, Shield Capital. Um, NVIDIA, um, there's sort of a huge range of much smaller firms that have much smaller sort of um, capitalizations, much less sort of money to work with. But those are some of the sort of big ticket ones. And they fund, you know, a lot of the companies that you've probably heard about in the news, right? So Anduril, um, Palantir, Shield AI, um, 
Skydio, um, Helsing, um, a lot of these sort of, you know, um, defense tech firms that you've probably read about because they're involved in some sort of questionable <laughs> activities, um, a lot of surveillance tech, a lot of autonomous weapons tech, um, and very active, obviously, in Israel um, right now because, of course, the Israeli sort of occupation infrastructure is extremely automated, right? A, a lot of Palestinians never even see an Israeli, right? They may hear them their voice over a loudspeaker, you know, they may see something on a camera, but they're, it's all, it's, it's very sort of electronic. It's very automated. Um, so it's been in the news a lot. Um, the, the supply side, that venture capital side is really because, you know, you have these extremely wealthy sort of tech entrepreneurs, right. Who were invested in PayPal and, um, Spotify and all of these other sort of tech firms. And then they accumulated enormous sort of um, surplus capital stores um, and they wanted somewhere to put it, right? And so you have the um, these huge venture capital funds and it makes a lot of sense for them to put it in the military industrial sector because that's sort of the one sector that the U.S. government still subsidizes, right? Um, so there's been sort of a hollowing out of all other sort of forms of public investment. Um, but because you have such an enormous annual Pentagon budget, right, $800 um, billion, probably more if, if you count some of the sort of off-budget spending items, um, that's a huge magnet, right, for investment capital because they know that there's always going to be a market for that. There's always going to be a lot of demand. And so... For them, it's a very natural sort of extension, right, from the the technology firms that they were involved in, accumulating this enormous amount of capital and then using it um, to finance basically new defense tech startups um, in the U.S. and in Europe um, and the Middle East and Asia and all over the world. So over the past two decades, there's been a real convergence of resources in the military and defense tech industry. I remember reading um, a Financial Times article from 2021 saying that 54% of the Pentagon budget goes to uh, spending on defense contracts. So I'm wondering how these newer financial actors like venture capital and private equity are changing the playing field. Are they disrupting that monopoly that a lot of the big five companies have traditionally had? So Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and, and those companies. Yeah, um, it's funny that the you use the term disrupt because that's because they're from the tech industry. So that's also the terminology, right, that they use when they're talking about how they're going to revolutionize the U.S. You know, military industrial complex. Um, so yeah, most of the money does go to to contractors to pay for heavy equipment, right? Because that equipment is so expensive, um, and part of the VC backed defense tech sort of sector. Part of their selling point is that what they're going to provide is very distinct from what those sort of uh, OEM, you know, the original equipment manufacturers, the Boeings, the Lockheeds, it's going to be very different from what those firms um, provide. So um, the focus is very much on sort of smaller, very high tech, modular, like mass production commoditized hardware. So 
things like drone swarms, right? This is this is very much um, at sort of front and center for these firms in terms of what they're going to provide. A lot of it is um, software. A lot of it is AI-driven targeting systems. I don't. Uh, there was a, a really great article in Nine Seven Two magazine that came out in the past few days um, about how the Israeli army was using AI to generate literally thousands um, of targets, right, in the contemporary war on Gaza, and then also how they had been used in previous conflicts also. Um, but if you think about the, you know, the amount of time that it takes sort of an intelligence analyst to identify a target based on all of this incoming data, you know, an AI can generate literally ten, hundreds, thousands of targets in the same sort of amount of time. And so what they're sort of pushing, what they're promoting is sort of uh, revolutionizing the way the U.S. military actually conducts war. Um, and I, it's it's very clear to me that the what they're selling really is a way of changing the way the U.S. military engages in warfare so that it matches up with their sort of business model, right? So that it matches the technologies that they are developing. So if you read, I mean, the the number of white papers, right, and policy papers um, and public lectures that VC founders and defense tech sort of executives are giving throughout the United States right now is pretty incredible. So if you read a lot of the stuff that they're writing, you know, they are talking about how the Pentagon really needs to be completely transformed, right, in the way that it conducts procurement. And the U.S. military needs to be transformed in the way that it conducts warfare. And they point to those, you know, the big primes and they say, you know, these are archaic sort of dinosaurs that develop extremely expensive, bespoke weapon systems that sometimes don't work very well. And it costs a lot of money and it, it you know, sometimes it's not useful in, in theater. But what we're developing is, you know, the kind of equipment that's going to be used in the war against China the kind of equipment that we need to be giving to the Ukrainians right now and the kind of equipment that Israel can use in its war on Gaza. So it's a very, um, it's not just about, um, it. First, for them certainly it's about making money, <laughs> right? But that has to be couched um, discursively, you know, at least um, in some sort of um, language about changing the way the U.S. military engages in war and in reforming the Pentagon, right, and cutting through bureaucracy. It's very much the sense that America is a declining empire, right, and that these guys, because they're all guys, are going to rescue us, right, from that decline. They're going to restore the empire, right, through developing these new technologies that are going to allow us to confront China, to confront Russia, um, to confront all these simultaneous threats, and they're going to do it through basically completely remodeling the entire military-industrial complex. Well, I seem to have unfortunately internalized that lingo of Silicon Valley with their <laughs> disruption. Yeah, they didn't leave it at home when they went to Washington to to talk to the Department of Defense. <laughs> yeah, but I I do wonder with that sort of strategy, you know, those incentive structures of just kind of coming in, restructuring companies and then making the money and taking off, really. Do you, are you hopeful that that might actually hasten the end of 
empire, so to speak? It's difficult to say because, you know, of course, that is their goal, right? That's the goal of VC um, and that's the goal of private equity, right? To to get in, to provide some startup capital, to IPO the firm through, you know, initial public offering, um, to cash out and then do it all over again. Um, But it's very interesting. What you're seeing is actually a convergence of the VC-backed defense firms, defense tech firms, them sort of morphing into prime contractors, right, which is exactly what you would expect because they're interacting with this enormous defense bureaucracy um, and, you know, an enormous, just incredibly complex, you know, military system. And so it makes sense that they would actually sort of become the thing that they say they're trying to displace. So Anduril um, is... I would say a lot of sort of um, analysts consider it sort of like almost like a prime contractor, almost like a Lockheed, right? Um, Because it has all of these many sort of um, product lines. um, And it is also incorporating sort of other defense tech firms into its product line, right? That for decades, that was how the primes um, actually um, innovated, right? most of the innovation was not coming from within Raytheon or within Lockheed or within Thales. They were just seeing small tech firms that existed outside who were developing new sensing technologies or better GPS or geolocation technologies or some some kind of very sort of minor improvement in some sort of existing technology. And they were buying them up, usually very cheaply, and incorporating that technology into their huge multi-billion-dollar weapons platforms. Um, so basically, I think a lot of these firms, and especially VC investors who had a lot of capital, uh, looked around and they were like, "Why should we let <laughs> these prime contractors buy up all these defense tech firms um, for so little money, and then get all the benefit of those new technologies? Why don't we just fund?" those firms, and then they can become sort of large businesses in their own right, and they can supply this technology to a huge range of military contractors, not just the prime firm that buys them up, right? And so I think they probably saw this as a a major sort of investment opportunity. Um, But now, of course, like Anduril, because it's so, because it was really sort of the first one um, and has become really the biggest one. It is sort of turning into um, almost behaving like um, like a prime contractor, like a Lockheed or a Boeing, um, and so it, it'll be interesting to see whether the the structures of the military industrial complex are so powerful, right, that um, these firms can only exist in sort of one model, and that model is the is that of a huge sort of highly um, conglomerated you know prime contractor and where is all this money actually coming from like these venture capital or vulture capital firms if you want to call it that where where does this money come from is it a lot of it saudi money or money from the united arab emirates yeah of course um a lot of the issue is that you don't really know where the money comes from i mean a lot of these venture capitalists right, were early investors in these huge tech firms, right? Like, again, like PayPal, I mean, 
I, I don't know why I have that stuck in my head, but all of these um, sort of tech firms um, that went public and were sold for like many hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, right? The the founders of those firms are obscenely wealthy at this point, right? And we know that these people basically don't pay taxes, right? Um, so if they're not being taxed, that money, right, can go into investment and expansion of the military industrial complex. So they can basically just sort of um, do whatever they want because they have so much money. They really have so much influence in shaping what the entire sort of tech sector is going to look like. And you've seen sort of a huge sucking sound in the tech sector, all of the money sort of going into um, firms that have some sort of military related application. So in that sense, you know, it's basically, uh, you know, untaxed, you know, wealth that's just being sort of continually um, accumulated and is going into these firms. And then on the other side, we do have um, enormous amounts of money coming from um, sovereign wealth funds, right, in the Gulf and then also elsewhere, um, really throughout the world, and going into private equity funds that are also investing and buying up huge chunks of defense firms. Um, but the they are also the limited partners in some venture capital firms, right? So they're providing the actual physical, you know, capital that those firms um, can then invest in all kinds of startups. But the unless the firms themselves publicize where they're getting the money from, who their limited partners are, there's no regulation in the U.S. that says any of these firms need to disclose where their capital is coming from, right? Which is is pretty pretty incredible. There were some um, uh, maybe in the last year or two, I forget what the acronym is, but there were some regulations that were passed about beneficial ownership in the U.S., right, that you would basically have to disclose who owned a corporation, but private equity, venture capital are exempted from that, <laughs> right? So there's literally zero transparency um, in this. Um, one example would be Jared Kushner, right, when he left um, the White House. I, he started um, a private equity fund. I forget what the name of the fund was, but basically the goal was to take capital from the Gulf states and from Israel and to invest it jointly um, in all kinds of, you know, sort of startup firms and and different existing firms. Um, but the only reason we know that is because there's been a lot of scrutiny of the Trump family and of Jared Kushner, right? And so some enterprising journalists somehow got access to the information that told us where the money was coming from you know, from the, the Saudi public investment fund and probably Emirati sovereign wealth funds and then from um, the Israeli state. So the only reason we know that, though, is because, you know, it was leaked. It's not there's no requirement to actually reveal any of the, the source of those funds. So it's extremely opaque um, sector. Well, besides having more accountability, what would you say would be the way to sort of sever the link between the money involved in this and, and the power that wields and U.S. foreign policy, would you say the nationalization of the defense sector would be the best way to go? Yeah, I mean, ideally, we would start taxing these, right, these people that have accumulated such enormous fortunes. 
right? Because part of the the allure of these people to not only the Pentagon and the U.S. military establishment, but really to the entire sort of U.S. political and economic establishment, is that there is no space anymore for U.S. government investment in public infrastructure or basic research or any of the other kinds of investment that got us economic growth in the past, right? And so they're saying, well, you know, we don't we don't have the government budget to do any of this stuff anymore, but hey, here's this huge well of, of un sort of, you know, untapped capital. Why don't we try to incentivize these guys, you know, into, into investing in the kinds of research and infrastructure and stuff that we want? Of course, that's not what they do, right? They give us NFTs and, and cryptocurrency and Theranos and Uber and WeWork and all of this stuff that is completely useless at best and at worst, you know, parasitic on the existing what's left of the real economy. But that's part of their allure is that, you know, people, you know, people in power see them as a, as a way of sort of reclaiming, right, America's sort of hegemonic past and putting us at the forefront of technological innovation once again, as you know, was the case sort of after World War II. Um, it's very clear to me that um, that the way these firms, the way these venture capitalists um, sort of characterize what they're doing um, is very instrumentalist. And it's very clear that they are trying to sell this project um, to the U.S. military establishment, to the U.S. government, um, because it is beneficial to their bottom line and because they have this sense of they all want to be the great man in history, right? They are almost to the last one, you know, sociopathic, like megalomaniac, you know, narcissistic, you know, personality disorder <laughs> types. If you follow any of these folks, you know, online, I mean, that's how they got into the positions, you know, that they're in today. And it's just really, it's incredibly terrifying to think that um, that these people, because they have been able to accumulate so much power in the form of all of this surplus capital, that they are really the ones who are sort of dictating the future of the country, not just in terms of, you know, a, a, you know, geostrategic impulses and you know the the sort of future of the U.S. military establishment, but also political and economic policy, sort of more broadly. Um, which is really, really terrifying. Does that answer your question or was that, <laughs> did I go no, off I mean, script? Well, <laughs> I think you kind of uh, enable this segue to U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East now with with your response, because you've done a lot of research on Egypt and Jordan. And from what I understand, the U.S. or U.S. policymakers have had this policy of arms for peace. So essentially you know, sending weapons to authoritarian regimes such as LCC's Egypt and, you know, giving them loads of weapons and supporting what they consider to be a stable uh, regime, be it authoritarian, but, you know, the stable aspect of it being much more, you know, easy pr to predict and also um, enabling them to also exercise their leverage in a way. Um, or that's how a lot of these policymakers see it. They think that if they're able to send all these weapons, then they'll be able to exercise leverage over 
uh, that particular regime. Do you think it's played out that way or what's your assessment? <laughs> no, not at all, of course, right? I mean, the the whole sort of idea behind um, arms for peace is just, right, it sounds patently absurd, right? And indeed, it is absurd. I mean, all it has done is generate arms races in the region, right? And the only ones who benefit from arms races are the, the members of the military industrial complex, right? So, you know, the, the annual sort of... Um, foreign aid disbursements that are made to Israel and Egypt, for example, um, are sort of counted on, right, by certain defense contractors because they know um, that this money is going to be available every year and that they're going to get a piece of it because, of course, it can only be spent on U.S. origin weapon systems, which actually I should caveat that by saying that Israelis can spend it um, domestically also. So they have a sort of a waiver, right? The Egyptians have to spend it on U.S. origin weapon systems, but the Israelis can can use it to procure systems from their own domestic defense industry, which itself, right, evolved out of partnerships and support and subsidies from the U.S. military industrial complex, right? So um, it's um, it's sort of you know it generates, I guess, its own sort of um, market logic and its own sort of internal, um, you know, force, right, where U.S. military firms get these exports, right? The for the countries in the region use those exports um, to sort of supplement, in many cases, their own domestic defense production through co-production or licensing agreements and other sort of um, arrangements. And then Places like Turkey is an excellent example. And then, you know, 10, 15 years later, they have their own enormous um, indigenous defense sector that grew out of those earlier partnerships. Um, and I don't think anyone would argue that having a bunch of countries all over the world with substantial domestic <laughs> military production capabilities is going to make the world a safer place, right? One of the sort of truisms of, I guess, international relations or global politics more broadly is that um, militaries become more influential as their domestic arms industries grow in size, right? Because you can, you know, you can definitely see if, you're, if your economy is producing sort of sophisticated military equipment, right, for sale, your military is is by necess is by sort of default going to want to to use that equipment, and they're going to want to be able to produce more of their own equipment nationally and domestically, right? They're going to want to be trained on the kind of equipment that the firms in their country are producing, and so it becomes this um, sort of feedback loop where you have a growing domestic industrial military industrial footprint, and then the military becomes more influential in domestic politics, and because the military is more influential in domestic politics. They want the government to commit more money to expanding domestic defense production in their economy. And so you have increasingly sort of influential and politically sort of potent militaries um, spreading sort of throughout the world as many countries are expanding military production in their own countries in part as a hedge, I think, against what they see as 
the declining sort of viability of the U.S. security guarantee, right? Because they see that the U.S. is not um, sort of an unrivaled hegemon anymore and may not have the the sort of the appetite for, you know, sending <laughs> tens of thousands of troops to Saudi Arabia, right, if, if there's an emergency. And so Saudi Arabia is buying weapons from Russia and a lot from France and China and South Korea and trying to sort of, you know, spread about its sort of commitments. And the Saudi military is also becoming sort of much more sort of influential domestically and engaging in a lot more sort of foreign policy adventurism right in the region um, and in the Horn of Africa and different places. So it's um, it's a self-fulfilling sort of um, cycle, and it's definitely not one that's going to make the world a safer place. Yeah, it's hard to find an off-ramp out of that cycle, and it's probably most likely it's also contributing to a lot of the dynamics of this uh, arms race that we see that's kind of brewing in the Middle East. But I wanted to go back to the question of leverage because you did see Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, recently speak to uh, members of the Likud party where he was saying, you know, I'm the one to get rid of Hamas. I'm the one to ensure that there won't be a two-state solution, that Palestinians will never have their own state. And I'm also the one who can, you know, make sure that the Americans don't have any say over Israeli policy in in Gaza and in the occupied uh, Palestinian territories. And around the same time, you do hear certain people from maybe within the State Department or other U.S. officials kind of saying, oh, we don't have so much leverage over the Israelis. And to me, this this is really just absurd, in my opinion, because the U.S. is giving money, tons of money, and weapons to Israel. So how is it that they're saying, oh, we don't have any leverage here? What do you make of that? Um, yeah, I I think they're, they're saying that as a way to sort of deflect criticism of the Biden administration, for sure. So, um, you know, I think AIPAC recently, you know, sent a couple delegates to Israel and immediately, right, they were granted um, a meeting with Netanyahu, like a private meeting with Netanyahu, right? So if you don't have any pull, it's the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, right? So it's an American organization. Um, they're not registered under the Foreign Agent Registration Act, which is they have an exemption from that, even though they are clearly lobbying on behalf of the Israeli government. Somehow they have managed not to have to register as a, a foreign agent. But um, no other organization would be able to directly get access to to Netanyahu from another, you know, from another country. So the the lines are clearly open. I mean, there are senior U.S. military officials and and political sort of cabinet members that are involved directly in the day to day, minute to minute operations in Gaza. Right? They are hand in glove every day. Um, the U.S., you know, secures so much sort of uh, of Israel's sort of access, you know, to to regional waterways. Um, there are so many ways that the U.S. has e extremely critical um, leverage over Israel, not just, you know, the continued supplies. Right. You know, there's a huge stockpile of U.S. weapon systems that are kept in Israel. Um, 
also intended for use of the U.S. military if they need to access them. But of course, they just granted a waiver to to Israel that they would be able to use anything from the stockpiles that they want. But the the idea that that all of the the coordination and the extremely high level, like very close contact that they have between the two states is not indicative of an extraordinary amount of leverage is is complete nonsense. If they wanted um, Israel to stop, you know, to to make the ceasefire permanent and to stop the assault on Gaza tomorrow, they would have to do it. Um, I think, you know, what we we thought Biden was sort of an anti-war president a little bit at the beginning, right, with the the Afghanistan withdrawal, um, and then I think. Um, people, a lot of people were just blindsided by this. Although if you look back, right, to sort of Biden's history um, in Congress, uh, it becomes much more clear that this is how he would have reacted. Although, you know, nobody sort of could have uh, predicted. Well, of course, we would all predict that some some kind of um, blow up like this would happen because of the conditions um, in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip. Um, but yeah, this sense that this claim that, you know, somehow um, Biden and Blinken are, are trying to sort of get Israel to change course um, and that they just don't have the leverage to do that is just a, is patently false and completely absurd. Well, one other question on that before we end. I mean, this is maybe going a bit more in, in the policy world direction, but how do you see uh, CIA director Bill Burns's role in in trying to bring about a ceasefire. I mean, unfortunately, the ceasefire or it's not a real ceasefire, but the truce has now come to an end. There's, you know, Israeli bombardments of Palestinians again in Gaza. And during this whole period, Palestinians have also been unlawfully detained in Gaza as well as in the West Bank. So let's not forget that even, you know, during the few days that we had of a so-called truce, that Palestinians were still being taken I would argue, taken hostage um, by being uh, detained unlawfully. But do you see any glimmer of hope there with with Bill Burns being able to maybe negotiate in in good faith, like much maybe even in a more advanced sort of sophisticated way than Secretary Blinken is able to? Yeah, I mean, the you mentioned the the sort of the arrests. I, I believe there have been many maybe twice as many Palestinians um, arrested and under administrative detention in the West Bank since October 7th than the number of prisoners that that Israel has released as part of this hostage deal. Right. So on, you know, on balance, you know, there's there's more there's more Palestinians in prison now than there was before October 7th. Um, So that's obviously, you know, not part of the sort of mainstream media coverage of the issue, but it's extremely unfortunate. Um, yeah, I I forget um, who it was, um, some member of the administration, but, you know, was basically told from the, the start of the Biden administration to keep the Middle East off of his desk, right? That he had domestic political priorities. He wanted to get these done. And so just keep the Middle East sort of out of the Oval Office, we don't want to have to deal Israel Palestine out of the Oval Office. We don't want to have to deal with it, um, and so I think that they were caught completely off guard, right? 
and that Blinken was just extremely sort of um, underprepared <laughs> for for what he was tasked with. I think initially, very early on, um, he did in the very first few days of the conflict, if I remember correctly, um, Blinken tweeted something about, you know, we need a ceasefire now. And then it was immediately taken down. I don't know if that's an apocryphal story or not. Um, but the fact that he doesn't seem to have enough sort of, um, you know, the ability to push back, I guess, against others in the administration um, and has just been sort of completely just swept along <laughs> by the the tide of events suggests to me that that he was extremely sort of unprepared and just not capable of dealing with this. And so, yeah, Burns um, going may may improve things. Um, maybe he's, you know, better able to sort of to stand up to the Israelis. I mean, that's that's entirely possible. Um, and I guess is maybe cause for for some hope. But I guess we'll see very, very soon whether or not that's the case. Well, I think this unpreparedness, though, if I just may add, is kind of an extension of this arms for peace logic of basically encouraging normalization between parties like Bahrain and Israel. And, you know, that I mean, the Abraham Accords are pretty much just an arms for peace deal. If you look at what is really in, in the details of those agreements. And so you know, th their approach is to just keep things stable and hope for the best. And when things actually do erupt, when the set situation changes and there's a bit of a paradigm shift, then they don't know how to deal with it. Yeah. I mean, the the Abraham Accords, um, I think, were, were very much driven by um, the desire of the Emirates and Saudi Arabia to sort of... Um, capitalize on the Israeli tech industry and partnerships that would be related to surveillance and repressive technologies and military technologies. Um, I mean, the Emiratis have had sort of partnerships um, with the Israeli sort of tech sector going back, I think, to like before 2010 even, right? So it's not that the, that this was sort of which is is related to the fact that that oftentimes the funds that you're looking at you have no idea where the money's coming from right so it's not like it's not like this was a real political issue in the emirates right because it it, it wasn't sort of surface level visibility um but the 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 very sort of advanced development of the israeli tech sector and the israeli sort of military industrial sector and the way they've been able to sort of um, develop new border technologies um, that uh, in their, you know, efforts to sort of contain um, the Palestinians has is really attractive to a lot of, you know, repressive authoritarian governments all over the world. Right. And so the Emirates and, and Saudi Arabia and other countries in the Gulf were just, you know, I think extremely eager um, to be able to capitalize on that relationship. And they definitely have. Right. There's been a huge number um, of joint venture partnerships between um, surveillance tech firms and um, security and military firms and the Emirates and with those in Saudi Arabia. 
I well, mean, with they Pegasus form, too, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's only sort of the most, you know, high profile one because, and again, you know, you only discover its existence, you know, when something goes wrong, right? Essentially, when when they get sort of found out, right, by, you know, journalists or, or something. So it's, you know, who knows how much stuff is sort of exists sort of under the under the surface level. But they have, yeah, they have this Abrahamic Business Council that was produced as a result of the Abraham Accords. And it's basically, um, I think, very focused on defense, security, tech, repressive technologies, especially the collection of open source intelligence um, material so that they can basically, you know, know where everyone, everyone who's, you know, a potential sort of um government opposition sort of activists they can know where they are at all times they can listen into their phone calls they can hack into the phone's camera um they can geolocate them with all sorts of signals intelligence i mean it's like it's very sort of dystopian um and it's only going to be sort of intensified um as a result of this war because of course you know what we're going to see after this is all of the you know the the corporate literature about the battle-tested systems, <laughs> right? That are that are coming out of Israel, and they're where where are they? What are they talking about when they say they're battle-tested? This is, you know, this is what's happening in Gaza right now. That's what they're that's what they're talking about. So, it's basically like a free advertising for them, unfortunately. Yeah, Gaza is essentially a technological testing grounds for a lot of these companies. Yeah, there was a great book. At, was it Lowenstein, I think, um, the Palestine Laboratory? Yeah, that I would yeah. also, yeah, super recommend people check that out. Well, Shana Marshall, it's been really great speaking to you. I hope we can continue this conversation another time, even though the topic is, you know, quite depressing considering what's going on right now in the Middle East and in the occupied Palestinian territories. Yes, yeah. Um, thank you very much, Talia. I really I really uh, enjoyed it, and um, thanks so much. And thank you for watching TheAnalysis.News. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to contribute to making it possible for us to continue making this show, you can do so by going to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and hitting the Donate button at the top right corner of the screen. Thanks for joining us.